The guru-disciple relationship is one of the most ancient and most central parts of all classic spiritual traditions, especially those originating in Eastern and Oriental traditions. Yet in today's world and amongst modern practices and practitioners, it has become one of the most controversial and often one of the most abusive and misused aspects of the spiritual path. So in today's video, we're going to be kind of looking at this issue. What is it in modern society that might clash with this ancient tradition? And how can practitioners, especially Western practitioners who are dealing with a concept that's somewhat foreign to their culture, healthily approach this relationship in a way that does justice to the ancient institution, but at the same time does justice to some of today's values and to the world that we live in now? If you enjoy the video, please make sure to press the like button and to subscribe to the channel so you can keep up with all of our weekly updates. Thank you. Mentorship is a central part, a kind of a pivotal part of human education and learning. It's one of the best ways to learn something is to apprentice to a master of that thing. And in the spiritual tradition, in which spiritual practice and the spiritual way of life is seen as one of the most important things that you can do with your life, the spiritual mentor gains a very kind of unique position in the life of the disciple, in the life of the practitioner. They become a kind of compass point for them. They become their spiritual guide. And in many situations, and in classic spirituality, where a student may be living at an ashram with a small group of people and one dedicated master, the master may oversee many different aspects even of their personal life, let alone of their spiritual life. Somewhat similar uh, in today how a priest or a bishop or someone of the sort may oversee in some ways the uh, secular lives of their followers, of their church members, and not just their spiritual life. In Eastern culture and Oriental culture, this concept of the spiritual mentor takes a depth and a level to it that really is quite foreign to Western culture and especially any Christianized uh, countries, any countries whose culture developed as a result of Christianity and which, regardless of how Christian uh, that country or culture may be now, still has a lot of Christian concepts of moralism, perfection, and spiritual truth uh, existing within kind of just everyday concepts and how people learn, how they learn about life. The closest thing to the concept of a guru or a spiritual teacher, a spiritual guide who has a particularly powerful and, inf and influential place over your psyche and over your life, the closest thing to that concept that we really see in Western culture is something like a monastic father or a precept or mentor within a monastery where the monks have to completely submit themselves ideologically, psychologically, emotionally, as well as their physical daily routines each day, their chores, what they eat, are in an act of complete submission to the, to the overseeing powers and authorities of that monastery and especially that of their spiritual preceptor. But outside of a monastery, we don't really, in kind of today's society as a whole and especially in westernized countries, we don't really have anything that can relate to this Eastern concept of the guru, of, of a human being who enjoys a supreme position psychologically, emotionally, spiritually within our day-to-day -day life and especially within our spiritual life and practice. As a result of this, the, the idea is quite foreign. And when the concept of, of the guru became more and more popular 
uh, especially in the 50s and 60s, 70s, when spirituality began to just spread throughout the whole world, especially Indian spirituality. And then in the 21st century, we see Buddhism is spreading, becoming very popular. Tibetan Buddhism is becoming more and more popular. This idea of one's Lama, one's Rinpoche, one's Guru is, has become more and more commonplace. But, and, and we see more and more Westerners and people from uh, Western countries engaging in this practice of the guru-disciple relationship and treating spiritual mentors as their gurus. Yet the idea remains foreign enough that it appears within these communities a lot of, that a lot of misunderstanding arises. So that we don't really see Westerners having a decent grasp of what it might mean to admit that somebody is your guru. Now, please understand, I think that it is actually itself a wonderful institution when it's pursued properly, and especially when it's pursued within the right cultural context. But I have seen this concept abused endlessly, as many people have. And in fact, the abuse of the guru-disciple tradition, uh, usually by gurus, has led to uh, a general disinterest in the spiritual path amongst many people. It has led many people to think that the entire path is fraudulent, and it has broken the hearts and destroyed the faith of many spiritual practitioners who suddenly had a stunning realization that their guru was not a perfected God-being, right? and, and that they really had no place making their entire life subservient to someone like this. I think one of the mistakes that we often make when uh, we approach this concept of the guru-disciple connection is that without meaning to, for some reason, we accidentally try to turn the guru into Jesus. And the guru is not Jesus. Yet, within Eastern literature and within some very classic uh, texts, some of the, the texts that are seen as extremely authoritative in yogic literature, tantric literature, the guru has to, to all appearances, a place kind of similar to what we might think Jesus should have, right? That the Guru is said to be perfect, the Guru is said to be a divine being, uh, a common maxim in Indian cultures, the Guru is God. And it's difficult to hear that and not subconsciously make the Guru into Jesus and expect the Guru to be Jesus. Yet, there's actually quite a difference between how, for example, a Christian uh, or someone raised within a Christian culture may consciously or even subconsciously view Jesus and how the uh, scriptural traditions say to view the Guru. There's some overlap, right? Both traditions say the Guru should be treated as divine or Jesus should be treated as a divine incarnation and divine being. Yet, most of the scriptural authorities allow for a Guru that is not absolutely humanly perfect. And this ends up causing some issues where even if a disciple may understand and may feel or even admit that no, their guru doesn't have to be perfect, they still nonetheless feel betrayed when they find out that their guru is not, in fact, perfect. Now, some of this is just how do you define perfect? In Eastern literature, perfection is a matter of self-realization, not necessarily a matter of moral perfection. Whereas in Christianized countries, the whole Judeo-Christian uh, kind of spiritual tradition and religious worldview, there's not really a separation of personal perfection from moral perfection. 
And this seems to be a kind of miscommunication that happens between these two cultures when, when Westerners meet with this kind of Eastern concept of the, the God being, right? That the human that is like a divine being who you're supposed to surrender yourself to, we accidentally turn that person into Jesus and try to surrender to them the way that maybe our parents or grandparents talked about Jesus and talked about surrendering to Jesus. And as a result of this, we misapply our concept of a perfect person in a Judeo-Christian uh, moral and ethical world to the concept of what a perfected being means in yogic tradition, tantric tradition, Buddhist tradition, where perfection is a matter of self-realization and the direct experience of reality, but does not necessitate moral perfection, does not necessitate virtue. And there are some issues with this when it comes to the Western psyche, because I don't know if this is something that Westerners can easily drop, and I don't necessarily think it's a good thing if Westerners can try to drop this idea of moral perfection. There may not be a completely morally perfect human being, but nonetheless, spiritual teachers, people in positions of authority overseeing and teaching many different people, even if you're just overseeing and teaching a few people, you should at least be a moral exemplar. You should at least be uh, a clear indicator of virtue, a compass point for virtue. Because when we talk about perfection as something intensely and deeply spiritual and personal, that's not relatable to somebody who doesn't have realization. But what is relatable is the struggle of humanity, the struggle of trying to be good, the struggle of trying to understand uh, what might be good, what might be bad, how to overcome our personal struggles and desires and anxieties and depression, and how to live a happy, meaningful life. And that is relatable and it's visible to an extent. You can tell when somebody is living well. It shows. It shows in their eyes, in their face, in their demeanor, in the way they speak, the way they carry themselves, and what they accomplish. It shows in every part of their being. What is often quite difficult to see is the level of a person's realization. So these two concepts of perfection kind of clashing a little bit, the morally perfect being and the spiritually perfect being, I don't think we should necessarily uh, discard the concept of the morally perfect being and just accept that, well, our teacher is perfect the way they are, regardless of the situation. There are some traditions that teach that way. Yet, I haven't seen those traditions produce psychologically healthy results in their Western disciples. I think uh, having spent some time in India and been around some Indian gurus in small setting ashrams where you see uh, born and raised Indians who grew up with a family guru they saw their mother and father touch the feet of this person. They themselves grew up touching the feet of this person. And they have a natural disposition towards a kind of self-surrender, a giving up of the personal identity, a giving up of the personal will and desire to the spiritual guide, to the preceptor. And in so doing, they learn more and more how to become selfless. I have never met a Western practitioner, not saying that there isn't one, but I have never met a Western practitioner who would allow their spiritual teacher to tell them who they should or shouldn't marry, who would allow their spiritual teacher to tell them what job they should or shouldn't have, who would sell everything and give up everything if their teacher told them to. I've seen the exact opposite happen hundreds of times. I've seen the exact opposite take place constantly when a Western practitioner is confronted with any reach of a preceptor into their personal life. There's generally an aversion to it, a rejection of it, a repulsion towards it, and as a result, the person ends up looking down on their guru and often even leaves their spiritual teacher because they didn't appreciate that kind of uh, impingement upon their private life.
Now, what is the guru? How do we understand kind of the traditional interpretation or definition of, of what a guru is? The uh, first source that I want to look at for this comes from uh, the authority called Adi Shankaracharya in his Upadesha Sahasri. Sahasri. And uh, in this text, early on, in, in verse 6 of, of part 1, chapter 1, he gives a kind of a long-winded explanation of what the guru is. And this is more or less like the standard guru. This is the, the guru that on paper gets an A plus in terms of they meet all the criteria, they, all the check boxes are there. If you're really trying to scrutinize who your spiritual teacher is, this is the, the kind of classic checklist. And here he's summing up from a number of different scriptures. He quotes from the Chandogya Upanishad a number of times, um, as well as a few other ones as well. So he says here, the teacher, the guru, is one who is endowed with the power of furnishing arguments, pros and cons, of understanding questions and remembering them, who possesses tranquility, self-control, compassion, and a desire to help others, who is versed in the scriptures and unattached to enjoyments both seen and unseen, who has renounced the means to all kinds of actions, is a knower of Brahman, a knower of God, and is established in God, is never a transgressor of the rules of conduct, and who is devoid of shortcomings such as ostentation, pride, deceit, cunning, jugglery, jealousy, falsehood, egotism, and attachment. They have the sole aim of helping others and a desire to impart the knowledge of God only. So this is a very strict and a very classic definition of what the kind of ideal guru is. I don't think I know really of, of many spiritual teachers, at least in today's world, who could meet even half of that criteria. And Shankar is being intentionally strict here. He's trying to present uh, the, the highest level. And in some ways, really, he's talking about himself because he himself met all of those parameters. Yet, that is more or less the consensus of a lot of the traditional yogic and Vedic texts, is that we have moral perfection, we have intellectual perfection, and we have spiritual perfection, all coming together, being wrapped up in uh, deep compassion for one's disciples, and a desire to impart the perfections which you have experienced and attained in your life to others, so that they can have a better way of life. Not all traditions or texts are as strict as uh, Shankar is in the Upadesh, Sahasri, uh, for example, in the Das Bod, which is uh, one of the important texts in central India of the yogic path and on spiritual tradition and development, in uh, chapter 5, uh, the, the second subheading of chapter 5, verse 15, he says, One who opens up the inner meaning of words and reveals the essence of one's true identity is the true guru, who is their self the true resting place of the seeker. So this is a much more general, more universal idea here as to, as to who the guru should be. The guru's job is, is to open up the inner meanings of the scriptures, the tradition, the, the parampara, the, the ancient teachings, and to reveal the essence of one's true identity, to reveal the nature of yourself to you. Likewise, uh, Gampopa, one of the great uh, Tibetan Buddhist masters, he was a disciple of the famous Milarepa, an important master in the Kaju lineage, he says in his uh, famous treatise, A Precious Garland of the Supreme Path, in chapter 3, the first thing on which we must rely 
is a holy guru who possesses both realization and compassion. So here he actually gives three qualifications because he calls the guru holy, calls the guru pious, meaning this is a, a person who has some kind of spiritual development or perfection along the traditional religious lines, but especially qualifies the guru as having both realization and compassion. He goes on to explain further that by realization he means they have directly experienced for themselves the truths about which they are teaching. Right? They have acquired actual experience and therefore can truly guide people. And they have the compassion necessary to truly guide people. Often in uh, Vedic and Yogic literature, Tantric literature, we see the Guru defined in, as being this kind of embodiment or form of divine principles. And to return to the scripture, uh, the Das Bodh, a few lines after what we had quoted earlier, this is the 18th verse uh, in chapter 5, part 2. He says, that which is the essence of the Vedas, here defining what the Guru is, that which is the essence of the Vedas, the scriptures, and the highest experience are all one, and that is the form of the Guru. So the Guru is the form of the essential truths and experiences of God, of the highest realization. This is, again, a very kind of pithy understanding of the Guru. So how, if at all, can the Guru-Disciple relationship work for somebody who's living a, a modernized life in a modern country with kind of modern values and, and principles of, of family, work, career, trying to have uh, worldly success as well as spiritual success, uh, and especially countries uh, which are rooted in Western traditions and principles and Western religions, uh, such as the Judeo-Christian culture? How can we uh, approach this guru-disciple relationship in a way that does justice to the institution and to all the good things that it provides, but maybe as much as possible prevents some of the blatant abuse and manipulation that tends to follow uh, in, in doing so? Well, I think first we need to understand some of the differences in Western psyche, or at least the way that people are raised nowadays, uh, compared to that of classic Eastern cultures, and really of much of the classic world, whether Western or Eastern. And, and this is that modern Western society is uh, far more individualized, far more individualized than any classic culture. Even uh, the United States a hundred years ago was a more decentralized human experience than it is now. People were more in touch with their family, more in touch with their parents, with their grandparents, lived in tighter communities, knew the names of all of their neighbors and everybody a few doors down. And that has disappeared. And, and that's become the case in, in much of the modernized world now, where people are out of touch with their community, they're out of touch with their family, they're out of touch with their roots and where they come from. And, and so societies become incredibly individualistic, which clashes with a lot of classic uh, spiritual teachings, whether they're Western teachings or Eastern teachings, uh, this tends to clash because the spiritual path usually moves away from the self instead of towards it. Nonetheless, this individualization that happens has to have some kind of psychological place in the guru-disciple relationship now. One of the things that I think absolutely can't happen is you can't be part of, of a spiritual movement or follow some guru who, who doesn't even know your name. Who, doesn't, who wouldn't recognize your face. I don't even know why you would want to do that. I have no idea why somebody would want to, would want to, to claim one of these super gurus, these mega gurus with a million followers uh, as, as being their guru when the person wouldn't know their name and if they heard you died, not, they wouldn't care in the slightest. Um, because there's no connection there. Uh, from the more individualistic approach, what we're more familiar with in Western society is mentorship. 
And in Eastern tradition, there's a difference between a guru and a teacher. There's a difference between a master and a teacher. Not all masters are particularly good teachers, they may have, which means they may have profound realization, profound compassion, and not be particularly good at explaining their tradition, at explaining the scriptures, at explaining all the reasons why you should do this technique and that technique. They may not be very good at answering your questions. Um, and as a result, there's this kind of difference here between a mentor, which is an acharya uh, in Sanskrit, and a, uh, a master, which is a guru. And I think most human beings actually need uh, some kind of mentorship alongside that sense of having a guru. But I think especially people coming from a Western culture who live a more individualized life and who in our culture, uh, the whole concept of salvation and liberation is much more personal. In, in Christian mysticism, in Islamic mysticism, in Jewish mysticism, the concept of liberation is a far more personal concept. That it's your own personal salvation and your personal relationship to God. It's not an impersonal experience as it's taught about in many of the Eastern traditions, even if at some point the self is ultimately overcome. Likewise, the relationship to our teacher, the relationship to our spiritual guide, I think in order to be healthy for a Westerner, it needs to be a little bit more personal. It needs to be more individualized. It needs to be something that you know, we can actually talk to the person. We can learn. They can answer some questions and, and dispel some doubts that we have. They know our face. They know our name and, and know something about us as people. And therefore, alongside them being our spiritual preceptor, they are also very much a spiritual mentor. They help instruct us in the tradition. They help us understand why we're doing what we're doing. I think this relationship creates a much healthier thing because in mentorship, which is much more personal, both parties tend to get to know each other better. And if you've spent enough time around most of these uh, spiritual teachers and, and gurus that are famous now, you realize they're, they're people. They're just people. They may be astounding people. They may be people who have had some incredible experiences and they may be able to help you have those experiences as well. But they have plenty of quirks, they have senses of humor, they have good days, they have bad days, they have, you know, uh, different changes in attitudes and mindset oftentimes. And in a mentorship, you begin to experience that. And when you experience that, you can accept your teacher a little easier. And they can accept you. And when you have your shortcomings, they can be a little bit merciful and gentle and kind towards you. And then likewise, when they have their shortcomings, you can be a little bit kinder and understanding of them because you haven't turned them into this deity, this living deity on a pedestal that can do no wrong. That image of the guru is absolutely destructive, I think, in, in modern society. I haven't seen it work well outside of really uh, very culturally oriented spiritual circles. Right? Um, in, in Western tradition, the only time we really touch anything's feet is to, to kneel down at the cross, right? Or if we're begging, if we're surrendering and begging for our lives and we might prostrate ourselves to someone's feet. Um, to psychologically for a Westerner to be constantly bowing and submitting themselves at another human being's feet, I think just accidentally, whether we want it to or not, turns them into Jesus. And once we have turned the guru into Jesus, I think nine out of 10 times, maybe 99 out of 100 times, we are setting ourselves up for failure, we are setting ourselves up to be upset, and probably in the process we may even lose our faith, we may lose our path and turn away from the spiritual path. So I think if Westerners are going to uh, try to benefit from this, there has to be a much more personal touch, much more personal flavor to the guru-disciple relationship, and there has to be a lot more mentorship, a lot more personal uh, connection, which does justice a little bit to the sense of individuality and, and personalness involved in all Western concepts of salvation.
which Westerners, whether they want to or not, bring to the table when they're practicing things like yoga, they're practicing things like Buddhism, which are largely impersonal paths. And when you talk to a lot of modern spiritual practitioners, it's still an intensely personal thing. They want, they want happiness, they want meaning, they want to be free. And yes, those create obstacles actually in some ways to their realization. But that's part of Western culture. And I think that this clash a little bit between Western cultural concepts and views of what perfection is, what spiritual perfection is, and Eastern concepts and views of what spiritual perfection is, is something that hasn't really been addressed very well uh, by a lot of modern teachers and in a lot of modern spiritual circles, which is why I decided to address it in today's video. And hopefully, it's been an insightful video. Hopefully uh, everyone has learned a few things and uh, I hope everyone understands. Uh, I tried as much as I could not to be too critical of the institution. Like I said, I actually hold the institution of the Guru-Disciple relationship in high regard. I don't think we should be done with the whole thing. Right? I don't think we should completely disregard it. I think it has its place, just like mentorship has its place in any kind of discipline that you're trying to become very good at, that you're trying to reach a high degree of success and mastery And Mentorship is very important. Um, but I do think that Westerners have to be a little careful not to make their teacher into Jesus. Thank you for watching the video. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to subscribe to the channel so you can keep up to date with all of our weekly videos. Thank you.